All right, New Philly. Today we have a special guest speaker in the house. He's going to be delivering the word for us. Um, by the way, just real quick, uh, those who do the scripture reading, y'all got to read a little faster, okay? Um, uh, the scripture reading is taking a lot longer than I anticipated. So uh, those who are lined up for next week and future weeks, all right, practice your reading, all right? Get some hooked on phonics, get, 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 get it going flowing. Um, good job, though, Matthew. Good job today. You did a good job. All right. Uh, but today we have a special guest speaker. He's going to actually be preaching for us at our church wide retreat next weekend. Uh, next weekend is our church wide retreat. For those uh, guests that are visiting today, you are more than welcome to join us for this retreat. It's going to be a four day uh, packed uh, retreat. Uh, Four-day retreat packed with the Prezi and the Revy dropping heavy. The Prezi meaning the Lord's presence and the Revy meaning his revelation. Heavy meaning heavy. (laughs) Uh, It's going to drop. And Pastor Benjamin uh, is going to be one of the guest speakers, uh, one of three guest speakers that are going to be speaking at our retreat next weekend. But Pastor Benjamin, he flew in a little bit earlier to Korea. Uh, just because he wants to uh, spend time with us and just to sow into our lives and just to uh, fellowship together. And he'll be delivering the word for us today. Pastor Benjamin is the senior pastor along with his wife of Living Hope Christian Center, which is a church in Emeryville, California, in the uh, UC Berkeley, San Francisco area. And uh, uh, he is also my spiritual father. And he is uh, not Korean, uh, as you're about to see. And uh, he is going to drop the word for us today. So uh, let's put our hands together for Pastor Benjamin Robinson. How's everybody doing this morning? Good to see you. Good to see some new faces and some old faces. Just good to see faces. All right, I'm going to jump right in here um, because I prepared a message for you and the Lord blew it up. First of all, I want to acknowledge Pastors Christian and Aaron Lee. You are a powerful, powerful, dynamic duo for the kingdom of God. And I'm honored to stand in your pulpit and I'm thankful to be hosted in your house. And so my wife, Sunny, and I are always just so thankful to be here and so thankful for the warm hospitality and the honor that pastors Christian and Aaron give us. It's a privilege that we don't take lightly. And, uh, so I want to say that. I also want to say, uh, Wan. Oh man, I, I can't tell you how much I love you guys. Pastor Marcus, you're doing an amazing job. I've been listening to some of your messages and you are preaching your butt off. Uh, pastors Caleb and Mina down at seaside in Pusan. Wish we could see you this trip, but we're not going to be able to make it down. But we love you, and God is doing amazing things in Pusan. You're going to see some new things in this new season that I'm going to be talking about today. And you're going to see it in Pusan. You're going to see it very, very clearly. As well as Sydney, Australia. You know, Pastor Paul and Jamie, we love you so much. You know, Pastor Paul and Jamie came and actually spent some time with Sonny and I in Emeryville. 
uh, at our home in Castor Valley uh, uh, several months ago, a few months ago, and we just had a wonderful time of fellowship. Looking forward to seeing you one day, Sydney. Uh, but we'll see you at the retreat next weekend. And, uh, and I got something for you. I got something for Sydney. Uh, it's going to be a powerful time. So Hillside, so good to see you. You guys are awesome. You guys are amazing. So God is good. I'm going to jump into this word here. And I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 17, beginning at verse 20. All right. And while you're turning there. I, I love New Philly worship. I love New Philly worship. The presence of God comes real strong during New Philly worship. But not that. I love that your core value is extravagant worship. You all, you live out that core value very strongly. And that extravagant worship, you don't know how powerful extravagant worship is. Extravagant worship is powerful. And, and as I was sitting, as I was standing there and I was worshiping and just in the midst of the people, I like that Pastor Christian doesn't sit the pastors in the front. But he sits the pastors in the house, in the middle of the congregation, so that we can get a feel and a sense of what God is doing in the house. In the midst of worship, all of a sudden, the prophetic anointing, anointing fell on me. And if, if, um, if somebody hadn't stepped up here and started praying, I would have just screamed and started prophesying in the middle of the house. <laughs> and, you know, that used to happen to me a lot. I, I haven't felt that kind of prophetic anointing come on me maybe in 20 years. It used to happen when I was 17, 18, 19 years old and in the worst possible situations. Like, you know, I would be, I would just be, you know, attending a revival service where I didn't know anybody or any of the leadership or anything. And I'm out in the middle of the house and all of a sudden the prophetic would fall on me like fire and my whole body would start trembling and the word of God would just be burning in my heart and I couldn't contain it in the middle of worship. I would just start screaming and prophesying. And, and I would see God just break out in the house when that would happen. It was always a fearful thing for me because, you know, you don't know if it's going to be received or if it's going to be rejected. But it was never, you, when, the, when I started moving in the prophetic, it wasn't over individuals. It wasn't an individual, it wasn't, you know, when we're talking about the prophetic, we're talking about God speaking. God speaks through human beings. And when God speaks through a human being, we call that a prophecy. And a, a prophecy is simply when God speaks to a person on, be on behalf of one or, or more people. And God would speak to me on behalf of whole groups of people, and I would speak it out from the middle of the house, wherever I was, and the Spirit of God, the presence of God would break out. And that used to happen to me all the time, and I was scared that it would happen sometimes because the Word of God would come like fire. And I got in trouble many times for it, you know. I got uh, shut down because it was in places sometimes where they didn't even believe in that. You know, that's just not supposed to happen. Not only that, I was just a kid. But, but what happened as I began to stand in front of people to speak was a new kind of sense of the presence and empowerment of God. The empowerment of God to stand in front and speak is different from the power of God to speak from within, to speak from the midst. And I felt that that power of God come on me to speak from the midst. And I didn't want the microphone at that point. I wanted to speak from the midst of you. And this is the word that I heard the Lord speaking so strongly this morning that God said that the, in, in the days of Moses, I stood before my people and spoke through Moses and I was above my people as a cloud and a fire and I stood behind my people as a fire to protect them. But in, to, in this day and in this age, I'm going to speak from the midst of my people. God said, now I am speaking from the midst of you and, and in Luke chapter 17 verse 20 the scripture says being asked 
by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. One of my favorite passages of scripture is Isaiah chapter 12, and the last phrase of that chapter, the last verse of that chapter says, cry aloud and sing for joy, people of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel among you or in the midst of you. And the word of the Lord to you today is that God is getting ready to break out from the midst of you. That is what you're looking for is not going to come from the platform. The next move of the spirit that is going to bring increase to New Philadelphia Church in all of its locations is not going to come from the platform. And it's not to negate what comes from the platform. It's not to diminish the power or significance of what comes from the platform. Because what comes from the platform here will continue to be powerful. It will continue to be filled with wisdom and understanding and in revelation. But what God is saying is that he's going to do something from within the midst of you that's going to break forth from within the midst of you that's going to bring increase in the days to come. It's coming from the midst of you. Now, I've been meditating on the life of Gideon all morning long, and I've been thinking about how, you know, one of the, and and it, it makes sense now, one of the greatest hindrances to God raising up, when we're talking about God, I, this is coming together for me right now, so excuse me if I, if I talk around myself, okay? When we're talking about the Spirit of God breaking forth from in the midst of you, we're talking about God using the average member of the congregation to do extraordinary things. We're talking about God taking ordinary people, people that you never saw leadership in, people that you never saw greatness in, and doing great things through them. God is getting ready to use people that you never thought he would use. God is getting ready to empower people that you never thought he would empower. God's getting ready to speak to people that you never thought he would speak to. And some of you are going to see in the days to come that things are going to come out of people that you never thought God, and even people that don't deserve it. People that say, how could God speak through that person? That person's heck of fake. You know, I mean, this person, you know, I wouldn't speak through him if I were, well, God spoke through a donkey one time, right? God is going to speak through people that you don't think deserve it. He's going to speak through people whose lives don't even reflect the things that they're speaking. He's going to speak through people that are in all kinds of stuff. But the moment God begins to speak through someone, you're going to know that God is breaking out in that someone. That is, when God begins to speak, the very word that God is speaking through an individual is qualifying that person to speak it. Because when God said, let there be light, no light existed before he said it. And sometimes the filthiest person in your congregation might say, let there be light. And the very word of the Lord that's flowing through their mouth is creating light both on the inside of them and on the outside of them. And some of you have disqualified yourselves in your own mind because you think there's no way I'm qualified to be used by God. Look at all the inconsistencies in my life. Look at everything in my life that's not in order. And God simply says, just release control of your life to me. Allow me to use you. And when I begin to use you at that very moment, I'm going to bring your life into order. See, the greatest misconception is that you can prepare yourself to be used by God. Let me tell you something. You can't prepare yourself to be used by God. Only God can prepare you to be used by God. 
You can't qualify yourself to be used by God. Only God can qualify you to be used by God. Some of you are thinking, I need to straighten up. Let me tell you something. You can't straighten up. Only God can straighten you up. And that's why Jesus always called out people from the midst. Now watch this. In Luke 13, I believe it is. I didn't have time to check because I'm just getting this right here on the fly. So don't hold it against me if I'm wrong. But I believe it's Luke 13 where Jesus is in the synagogue and there's a woman bent over. And it's the Sabbath. He's not supposed to heal on the Sabbath. And this woman had been bent over for 18 years. And while Jesus is preaching, he looks out and sees the woman. And I'm sure Jesus is preaching and teaching, but his heart of compassion is being stirred up for this woman who's bent over because she's got a spirit of infirmity that's bound her for 18 years. And finally, he says, come up here, woman. He calls her out and he puts her infirmity on display in front of the entire body of people. And she comes up and she walks up. She's the last person in the house who wants to be called out. Now, here's the problem. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, remember when they sinned in the garden and they heard God coming, what did they do? They hid behind the bush and then covered themselves in fig leaves. The first thing they realized after they had sinned was that they were naked. That is, the result of sin is self-consciousness. I am conscious of what I am missing. I am conscious of what I am lacking. I'm conscious of what has gone wrong in my life. I'm conscious of what I don't have, what I didn't do that I should have done, and what I did do that I shouldn't have done. That is the level of consciousness. And when that is your level of consciousness, God is the last person that you want to interact with. And so if I were to call somebody out in this house right now and just call you by name and say, come up here right now, the first thing that comes to most of our hearts and minds is, oh, no, I'm in trouble. Something is wrong. Oh, no. What happened? Sonny and I, we, we crack up laughing because still at our church at, at Living Hope in Emeryville, there are individuals that say every time one of us says, I want to meet with you, I want to talk to you, that person gets all, all anxious. Why? What I do? Who told you? Can I tell my side of the story? <laughs> Matter of fact, there was one woman leader in our church. And, and when she first came to our church, my wife called her and said, I want to have lunch with you. She said, sure. And they went out to lunch and she kept excusing herself, going to the bathroom, coming back and forth to the bathroom throughout the whole lunch, like five, six times after it was all over. Months later, she told my wife, she said, I was so nervous that I had diarrhea all morning. I kept having to run out to the bathroom. My stomach was all queasy. And I couldn't even sit and talk to you because I was so nervous. I was expecting the hammer to fall at any time. Jesus is calling this woman out. And there was a common belief in Israel at the time that, that sickness was always the result of sin. If something went wrong in your life, it's because you did something wrong. And so this woman, when Jesus calls her out and calls her to the front, number one, she doesn't want anybody to see her affliction. And number two, she's convinced that her affliction is her own fault. Have you ever felt either of those two things? I don't want anybody to see what's gone wrong in my life. And number two, I'm convinced that what's gone wrong in my life is my own fault. And number three, if God were ever to expose it in front of everybody, it would be to bring me into the judgment that I deserve. Right? And Jesus calls this woman out on the Sabbath and he calls her up to the front and he says, woman, you are loosed of your affliction and straightens her up in front of everybody. And now the Pharisees are thinking in this, in their hearts, what, what's wrong with this guy? Doesn't he know it's the Sabbath? And Jesus says, you hypocrites, how many of you, if your oxen fell into a ditch on the Sabbath, you wouldn't pull it out. But yet this woman 
who is a daughter of Abraham and has been afflicted by the devil for 18 long years, how can I not set her free on the Sabbath? Right? And so the point that Jesus is making is that he cared about this woman. He exposed her not to embarrass her, but to set her free. And God is putting his finger on different ones of you in this congregation, different ones of you at Pusan, different ones of you in, in Seaside, or if that is Pusan, Itaewon, and Sydney. Yeah, all of y'all. All y'all. He's putting his finger on your life and he's calling you out and he's saying, I want you to stand up and be seen. You know, I was sitting there and I was trembling under the presence of God during worship, but I was nervous. You give me a microphone and a captive audience, I'm not nervous. I can preach anywhere. You put me in a stadium of 10,000 people, I'll preach. I preached on a platform in Ethiopia to 200,000 people. I wasn't nervous. I'm not nervous in front of people. People who say, if you're not nervous, then you're not taking it seriously. No, that's a lie. Because I never saw Jesus nervous. You imagine the disciples, what's wrong, Jesus? I'm getting ready to do the Sermon on the Mountain. Oh, I hope I do okay. I just don't believe that. But here I am. I'm getting ready to stand with the microphone. I have permission to speak here. But when the anointing comes on me to speak from the midst of you, all of a sudden I felt nervous. I felt nervous. Like, what if it's at the wrong time? What if Pastor Christian doesn't like this? Because, see, I'm his spiritual mentor, but he can rebuke me too. And he does. About my Facebook. About... (laughs) See... Sonny and I, we're, we're just as scared of Pastor Christian. My wife's like, I'm not taking this suitcase. I said, how come? She goes, because Pastor Christian's going to rebuke me for, for owning this suitcase. She's gonna, he's going to say, moms, you need to buy yourself a new suitcase. So I'm not taking this one. <laughs> mm. The time of a judge of the judges was a time in which Israel had no king. And when Israel had no king, the scripture says that Israel did, every man did what was right in their own eyes. There was no leadership. There was no government. There was no structure over the nation of Israel at the time. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And typically when there's no government and there's no structure and there's no leadership and everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes, they tend to do what's wrong in God's eyes. And so the people of Israel keep doing wrong and God sends an enemy to oppress them. And then they get right and cry out to the Lord and God sends a judge to deliver them. This happens over and over and over throughout the book of Judges. But the key to understanding the book of Judges is that when God raises raises up the deliverer, he always draws the deliverer out from the midst of the people. That is, he's not looking for someone who's standing in front of the people. He's not looking for the natural born leader. He's not looking for the successor to the throne. Notice that we never see a descendant of Moses leading Israel. You never see any of Moses' sons and daughters or Joshua's sons and daughters. It was always some no-name dude. Somebody, and and, and typically, a lot of times, it was some unscrupulous character who who didn't have any morality. It says Jephthah was a worthless man, and he hung out with worthless people. But God said, you're the leader right now. And so God would always draw the leader out from among the people. That is, the Spirit of God would come on somebody in the house, and they would feel afraid. And they would begin to tremble. 
There's nothing scarier than God putting his spirit on someone in the house to do something that you think only people on the platform should do. And so we see in in Judges chapter 6 that the scripture says, once again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And so he, he gave them over to the Midianites to oppress them. And the Midianites began to oppress the Israelites. And the scripture says the, the, the Midianites came in like locusts. And they filled the land. And they would come right about harvest time. They would let the Israelites till the, the ground. Sow the seed. Water the seed. And just before, just at harvest time, when the Israelites are getting ready to go bring in the, the harvest, the Midianites would come and steal all of the harvest. And leave the ground ruined. And so the Israelites were ruined because of the Midianites and they were crying out to the Lord for help. And God sends a prophet who cries out to the people of Israel and says, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you. And I said, I am the Lord, your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you've not obeyed my voice. Isn't that messed up that they cry out to the Lord for help. And guys, God simply sends a prophet to say, that's what you get, says the Lord. <laughs> and that's the end of the prophecy. Like he doesn't say, I will raise up one. No, God begins to raise up someone in secret. He doesn't raise them up. By, see, you think that, that, you know, you're waiting for to get called up on a platform and get a prophetic word to know that God's raising you up. And God is raising you up in secret. In many of you, God is doing a secret work of empowerment in your hearts that nobody else sees. And you don't even see it. But God is doing it right now. In the meantime, beginning at verse 11 of Judges chapter 6, the scripture tells us that the angel of the Lord visited this dude named Gideon. He was in a wine press trying to thresh his wheat. Now, a wine press is indoors. But in order to thresh wheat, you got to throw it up in the air outdoors. And the wind will blow the chaff away and the wheat will fall to the ground. Gideon is trying to thresh his wheat indoors. Ain't no wind, (laughs) right? And there's a message in that too, because some of you are trying to thresh your wheat behind closed doors and wonder why the chaff won't get blown away. If you're trying to deal with your stuff in secret, you got to take it out into the open. Sometimes one of the most powerful things you can do is sit down with the members of your small group and say, I got to share something with you. I'm struck. See, the wind's not going to blow away the chaff as long as you're hiding in the wine press. Gideon's just throwing it up in the air and the wheat and the chaff fall back down to the ground. That's how most believers live their lives, trying to thresh their wheat in a wine press. But that's another message. Pastor Christian always says I preach like five messages in one. The angel of the Lord appears to him and says, The Lord is with you, mighty man of valor. You know, the Lord doesn't make no sense sometimes. Sometimes God be talking foolishness. I'm serious. Sometimes the Lord just talks nonsense. You know, I mean, sometimes I I just want to say things. I I just want to say, you know, God, what are you talking about? You know, God, your reasoning is faulty. It's impossible for me to follow your logic leaps. Your arguments are unsupported. God would have never made it through seminary. 
professor would have been like, I don't understand your paper at all. Okay. You make these assertions that you don't qualify. You don't have a single footnote. <laughs> you know, you're not quoting anybody else. You just make these assertions. You just say things that are completely devoid of historical substantiation and lacks a total lack of a philosophical foundation for your arguments. You don't make no sense. See, when God talks, it sounds like foolishness because it doesn't agree with our perspective. God never says things that agree with your perspective. Because if it agreed with your perspective, he wouldn't need to say it. You already think that. So why does God need to say it if you already think that way? No, God is God. He only speaks when he has something to say that completely disagrees with your particular perspective. And so it sounds like foolishness. See, the definition of foolishness is anything that doesn't agree with your perspective. Mm. The problem is God's perspective and our perspective are, are so divergently different. God's perspective and your perspective are typically different perspectives. And when we're talking about spiritual maturity, we're talking about the process by which God's perspective and your perspective become one perspective. So the first thing that God, that the angel of the Lord says to Gideon, the angel of the Lord shows him that God's perspective of who he is and his perspective of who he is are two different perspectives. The angel of the Lord says, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Judges chapter 6 verse 12. And Gideon's thinking, do you not see what I'm doing right now? I'm in a wine press threshing my wheat because I'm afraid. That doesn't sound like a mighty man of valor to me. You see, Gideon thought he was a wimp, a coward, a weakling, and a punk. But God said he was a mighty man of valor. You got to listen to the language. The word mighty there in the Hebrew is gibor. Gibor. It means impetuous. A mighty man is one who moves forcefully or rapidly. Gibor, mighty, it means to move forcefully, rapidly, quickly, without thought. It's to throw caution to the wind. That's what it means to be a mighty man. But Gideon is a cautious man. And God says, you're a mighty man. And then he says, he's a mighty man of valor. The word in the Hebrew is kael. It means strength, ability, wealth, or force. Mighty man of valor. And it's interesting that Gideon challenged the first proposition, not the second. The angel of the Lord says, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And he says, well, if God is with us, then why has all of this happened to us? Where are his wonderful deeds? That's in verse 13. He says, what do you mean God is with us? If God is with us, then why is the situation working out the way it is? Have you ever asked that question? If God is with me, then why is everything falling apart in my life? If God is with me, then why am I facing the challenges that I've had to face? If God is with me, then why is my family going through the things that my family is going through? And in Gideon's mind, if he could discount the first proposition, he wouldn't even have to deal with the second proposition. He didn't even stop to even consider the fact that the angel called him a mighty man of valor. He simply says, God is with me, please. God isn't with us. 
The problem was that God's perspective of who Gideon was and Gideon's perspective of who Gideon was were two different perspectives. So now the angel of the Lord moves to who get, moves from who Gideon is to what Gideon can do. And now Gideon's going to see that God's perspective of what he can do and his perspective of what he can do are two different perspectives. So the angel of the Lord says in verse 14, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. He says, Go in this might of yours. So watch this. The angel of the Lord says, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon says, Well, if the Lord's with us, then why is everything falling apart? And the angel says, Go in this might of yours and deliver Israel from Midian. So no, no, you haven't convinced me of the first proposition. Why are you moving on to the next? <laughs> what do you mean might of mine? And here he uses a different word for might than he did in the last one. Now he says koach, which means strength, the ability to do something. Go in this strength of yours, in this ability that you have to do something. And what do you have the ability to do? Go deliver Israel. And the word there is yasha. It's where we get the word Yeshua from. It means to save, to liberate, or to deliver. To deliver. You go liberate, save, or deliver Israel. You have the power to do it right now. You've got the strength to do it right now. So go. And once again, Gideon objects. How can I save Israel? He says. My clan is the weakest of our tribe, and I'm the weakest of my father's house. He says, my clan is the weakest of my tribe. My family is the weakest of my clan, and I am the weakest of my family. You came to the wrong person. What do you mean, I'm the deliverer? I'm not the pastor. I'm not even the Sunday school teacher. I'm not even the usher. I'm the weakest member of this church. What are you talking about? Go in the strength that you have. You know what never ceases to amaze me? Is when I see people who never, ever dreamed of ministering, preaching, serving God. So often when they get an opportunity to share, it blows me away. And then sometimes I see people who have dreamed of it all their lives. They have a strong sense of calling, you know, and they get up and it just falls apart on them. (laughs) Say, how does that work? I mean, that person was powerful and they got up and it was, they were just a dry weed. And that person never thought they had anything. You know why? Because that person who never dreamed about it wasn't trying to perform. That person who didn't aspire to it. They weren't trying to make anything happen when they got up there. They're just talking to God's people. And they still don't think they're doing it. I remember when my wife first started prophesying, she didn't know it was prophecy. Because she never asked God for prophecy. She just started to get these visions. And I said, baby, those are some powerful visions you're getting. She said, what are you talking about? What visions? I'm like, well, you prayed for that person and saw a tree growing up out of the ground and leaves stretching across the nations and a crown of glory coming on. She's like, that was a vision? Like, well, what did you think it was? I just thought it was God showing me something. (laughs) That's kind of what a vision is. (laughs) See, God wants, when he does something pure, you don't even need to put a title on it. You don't even need to call it anything. We can get so hung up on titles. Was it a dream, a vision, a revelation, or an insight? 
Maybe it's just God showing you something. Maybe that's the best way to call it. God just showed me something. We don't have to categorize it. That's why God chooses the people that we would, we would least expect. Because those people have no aspirations that God has to contend with. So the angel of the Lord says, go save Israel. Go. And he says, I'm the weakest one. From Gideon's perspective, the commission of the angel was completely nonsensical. It's like, God, you're talking foolishness. This doesn't make any sense. First, you called me a mighty man of valor, which makes no sense. A completely historically unsubstantiated claim. See, Gideon was like me. He was a lover, not a fighter. He would talk his way out of fights. See, I grew up in East Oakland, right? Yeah, no, no. That's why you never hear me say, don't mess with me. I'm from East Oakland. Because when people mess with me in East Oakland, I'd be like, brothers, brothers, please. Now, let's talk about this. There is no need for more black on black violence. Remember, Martin Luther King had a dream that one day you and I would hold hands as brothers. (laughs) Now, let's pray. The problem was that God's perspective of what Gideon could do and Gideon's perspective of what Gideon could do were two different perspectives. God saw one thing and Gideon saw something else. So now the angel of the Lord moves on. And now Gideon is going to see that God's perspective of what he needs and his perspective of what he needs are two different perspectives. So he embraces the call to go and deliver Israel from Midian And now in chapter 7, he's going to gather the army. So he sends out word throughout the whole town. You know, he blows the trumpet. The Spirit of the Lord clothes him. He blows the trumpet. The Abiezrites gather behind him. So much good stuff in there. And now an army of 32,000 people come and join him. Now watch this. The Midianites filled the land like locusts, it says. Estimates are that the Midianite army were between 300,000 and 500,000 strong. And Gideon has 32,000. So let's say the Midianites have 320,000. And Gideon has 32,000. Now, how do you feel? You got an army of 32,000. And Midian has an army of 320,000. Gideon felt that he had a 90% deficit. He says, my army is 10% of what the Midian army is. So I'm at a 90% deficit. But the Lord speaks to him. More foolishness, nonsense. Chapter 7, verse 2. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many. Gideon says, God, I don't have enough. And God says, no, you got too much. Gideon says, I've got a 90% deficit. God says, no, you've got a 10,000% surplus. Because I'm going to take your 32,000 and whittle it down to 300. Gideon says, God, you must be out of your mind. 
So the Lord says, tell everybody who's scared to go home. Gideon calls the army together. I got an announcement. If anybody's scared, you don't want to die. Because we're probably all going to die. Go home now. You can die later. It wasn't a Braveheart speech. Remember the Bravehearts? Sons of Scotland. Will you fight? And then that one little Jashik, you know, no, we will run and we will love. If you run, you will live today. And one day, many, many years from now, lying on your deathbed, would you not trade every day from today until then for one chance, just one chance to come back here and tell the English that you can take our lives, but you cannot take our freedom. Right? I mean, isn't that the kind of speech you want to give your army? Gideon does the opposite. All right. How many of you all are scared? All right, go home. Go ahead. Are you serious? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go home, go home. You're not going to come back and kill us after you win? No, 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 no. Go home. Have dinner with your wife. Go home. And 22,000 of them leave. So Gideon's thinking, okay, at least I got 10,000. And God says, still too much. God, you took two-thirds of my stuff. No, still too much. Take them down to the river and tell them to drink, and I'll tell you what's next. So they go down to the river, and he says, go ahead and drink. And God says, watch this, Gideon. Watch him drink. And they're all drinking. They're all drinking from the river. God says, the ones who stand on their two feet and lap the water like dogs... Those are the ones that are your army. But the ones that get down on their knees and stick their faces in the, in the river, send them, send them puppies home. <laughs> so he starts counting the ones that are standing on their feet. And he takes them aside, and there's 300 of them. Why? Because not everybody who drinks from the river is fit for service in the kingdom. Because the ones who were down on their hands and knees weren't alert. The ones who stood and drank, they remained alert. And you've got to remain alert. Sober-minded. You know what sober-minded means? It means don't drink and think. (laughs) Don't drink and think. You've got to remain sober-minded. See, the problem is your mind is drunk. Because you've been drinking, you are inebriated with... The things of the world. Okay, moving on. That's not the point. (laughs) Gideon thought he had too much. Gideon thought he had too little. God thought he had too much. Gideon thought he was unqualified. God thought he was qualified. Gideon thought he was a weakling and a punk. And God thought he was a mighty man of valor. Gideon's perspective and God's perspective were two different perspectives. See, spiritual maturity is the process by which God's perspective of who you are, what you can do, and what you have becomes your perspective of who you are, what you can do, and what you have. As long as God thinks you can do something and you think you can't, you are in disagreement with God. You see, if you see yourself as weak, miserly, and 
and beggarly, you're living in a place of fundamental disagreement with God. And if you think you can't do anything significant, you're living in a place of fundamental disagreement with God. And if you think that you don't have what you need, you're living in a place of fundamental disagreement with God. You know, we got to stop at that last one for just one more moment because how often we tell God that we don't have what we need. How often? God, I don't have enough. This is the biggest one. The reason we think we can't is because we think we don't have. And the reason we think we are not is because we think we don't have. How often have you thought, if only I had more money, if only I had more more this, if only I had more that, if only I had more time, if only I had more education, if only I had more experience, if only I had more people supporting me. Do you know how ridiculous that sounds to God? Because you've got God. You don't need money or time. You've got God. You say, well, if I had more people. You've got God. Hello? How often, when was, I mean, has any, I mean, to agree with God, to agree with God, you've got to wake up in the morning and look at what you have and say, this is way too much. Way more than I need. This is, you got to look at your bank account and say, man, this is way too much. What am I going to do with all this? Lord, show me how to get rid of some of this. Right? You got, I mean, if Gideon had God's perspective, he would look at the army and go, Way too much. And this is overkill. Like 30,000 people? This is overkill. The problem is that we are living in a state of fundamental disagreement with God. And disagreement is a great obstacle to intimacy. You say, I wonder why I can't seem to draw closer with the Lord. Because you're constantly disagreeing with Him. I mean, how much time would you spend with somebody who's constantly disagreeing with you? How do you, how does that feel? Constantly. You say, I'm hungry. Well, I disagree. (laughs) Why do you have to disagree that I'm hungry? Because you just ate an hour ago. You shouldn't be hungry. What's my experience? Not yours for God's sake. (laughs) You know, I like this color. I disagree. I don't like that color. (laughs) How long would you want to hang around with that person? How do you think God feels? You're mighty. Well, I disagree. I mean, think of my daughter, Alethea, acted like that. Alethea, you're so beautiful. No, I'm not. And you know, sometimes she does that. Baby, you do that so well. No, I don't. I don't do it well at all. It just breaks my heart. Sometimes I just sit her down and just shake her. Listen to your daddy. You're beautiful. Dang it. You know, as a parent, it's interesting because you see some, some things click for some kids that don't click as fast for your kid. Other stuff clicks faster for your kid than, you know, than other kids. One thing that didn't click for Alethea was rhyming words. Right? She was constantly associating. She didn't get the concept of rhyming. You know? She really, so I said, okay, we've got to work on rhyming words. Her teacher says she's got to learn how to rhyme. I said, Alethea, what rhymes with red? She goes, blue. <laughs> <laughs> What rhymes with car? Truck. (laughs) Bicycle. (laughs) You know, she couldn't get the concept. And I would say, no, 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 no. And sometimes she'd argue with me. What rhymes with red? She'd say blue. I said, no, no, no. Bed, red, bed, 
No, Daddy, no. No, Alethea, I'm telling you, okay? No, Daddy. And then she gets frustrated and goes, I'm not good at this. I'm not good at rhyming. I said, Alethea, I know it's hard for you right now, but you're going to get this. I know you're going to get, no, I'm not. (laughs) Yes, you are. I promise you're going to get this. You know, there's stuff in your life right now that you just think to yourself, I'm just not good at this. I just can't do this. I just can't do it. The only problem with you is that you think you're an adult. So, So you think that that is justified. You think you're justified in thinking that because I just, I know, I know, you know, my daughter's four and a half. She don't know, but I know, trust me, I'm no good at that. Trust me. And God just wants to shake you sometimes. I'm the daddy. Listen to me. Let me tell you. And so in order to draw close to my daughter, I've got to break through her disagreement She's got to stop this. You want, you want to draw closer to God in intimacy? Stop disagreeing with him. Come into agreement with him because agreement is the fundamental form of intimacy. That's why when a couple gets in an argument, it's a breakdown in their intimacy. And they have to work through the argument In order to arrive back at the place of intimacy. Some of you in this place have been arguing with God. And this is the thing that blows me away. You know, I I find this. And I I find it. It's funny. When I see it in others, it repulses me. (laughs) Not so much when I see it in myself. It's understandable. (laughs) When. Because I was was telling Pastor Daniels. I said, you know, some of these people that I'm ministering to. They drive me crazy. Because they're obviously walking in foolishness, but they won't let me take it from them. And so they argue with me. You know, when I tell them, you know, God is getting ready to do something awesome in your life. They go, yeah, well, you just don't know what I've been through. Shut up. Just <laughs> shut up. Shut it up. So now I have to convince you. I have to argue with you to convince you. It's like, go listen to my teaching on submission, okay? Just, just say, just submit to what I'm saying. I'm not telling you to do, do nothing. Just believe that God loves you. Would you just believe that God loves you? You know, stop disagreeing with, stop arguing with me. And then Pastor Daniels, he just laughs. He says, Benjamin, you do that to me all the time. <laughs> How often I've had to try to convince you That God is getting ready to do something amazing. Well, Bishop, you don't know what's happening with the attendance. You you haven't seen the finances at the church. Yeah, wah, wah, wah. You can't draw close to anyone who is constantly at at odds with you. Discipleship is the process by which God brings you into a place of agreement with him. That's all discipleship is all about. God bringing you into a place of agreement with him. Think about it. God said, Abraham, get up out of your house and go to the place I'll show you. And God and Abraham said, yep, let's go. 
And God said, I'll make you a great nation. He said, cool. I'll bless those who bless you. He said, I. Right. I mean, what did Abraham do? I'll wait. Name one thing Abraham did. He didn't do nothing. I mean, this great father of the faith, he didn't do anything except say, God, I agree. That's all he did. And God said, you're the father of faith to everyone. You're my friend. I mean, God called him his friend. It was like God saying, finally, I found someone on earth who agrees with me. I'm so tired of people telling me I don't know what I'm talking about. So tired of people looking at me like I'm crazy. Discipleship is the process by which God brings you into a place of agreement with him. And God is so patient. God is so patient. I mean, he's so patient. Because we are incessant in our disagreement with him. Constant in it. And he just keeps coming back to us lovingly. So watch this. First, he sends his word to Gideon. He sends the angel of the Lord with this mighty word, right? Chapter 6, verse 12 and following. You know, the Lord is with you, mighty man of valor. And, 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 you know, he tells him he has strength. And so first God gives it to him in a word. You've got strength. You're going to deliver Israel. You're a mighty man of valor. That's not enough for him. Then he supernaturally accepts Gideon's worship. And chapter 6, verse 20 and following, the scripture says that Gideon says, well, how will I know that what you say is true? And then Gideon says, wait, wait, let me bring you an offering. Stay here. Don't leave until I come back with an offering, right? So he's telling God, please stay here, right? Like... God, anyway, so <laughs> I just imagine, you know, getting, going in the kitchen and God's there too. What are you doing here? I told you to stay out there. So <laughs> I'm everywhere, Gideon. That's just kind of what I do. And so Gideon makes him a meal. Like he spends all these hours, like making God a meal and he brings it out and he serves God. And the angel of the Lord says, uh, put it on that rock. And he puts it on the rock and he takes his staff and touches it. Whoosh and fire just like. It consumes it. Like what took Gideon hours to prepare, God consumes it in a moment. Whoosh, thanks. You know, I'm full now. <laughs> that is, God supernaturally consumes his worship. When he brought that meal, he was giving God an offering. First, God sends his word. Then secondly, God consumes with fire his act of worship. God wants to send, God, see, God is constantly sending you his word. He's constantly speaking. Even, even as I'm speaking right now, he's sending you his word. But secondly, God is going to consume your offering in an act of fire. And when the fire of God comes in the midst of worship, what God is doing is he's confirming his word for you. What God is doing is he's softening your heart so that he can bring you one step closer to the place of full agreement with him. And then thirdly, uh, he honors his fleeces. In chapter 6, verse 36 through 40, the scripture says, Gideon takes a fleece of wool and says, do me a favor, God. Uh, I, I know it's stupid of me to ask you for this, but I need to ask anyway. He goes to the threshing floor and he lays the fleece on the ground. It's wool, just some wool, right? And he lays it out on the ground and he goes, tomorrow morning, let this wool be filled with dew, but let the ground be completely dry. And God says, all right, fine. Next morning, the wool, he wrings it out. It fills a bowl with water, but the ground is completely dry. 
It's okay, God, do that for me one more time. But tomorrow, let the ground be sopping wet, but let the fleece be dry. And sure enough, the next morning, the fleece is dry and the ground is sopping wet. God honors his fleeces. That is, he asks for a sign and God says, okay, I'm going to give you a sign. Why does God give us signs of his love? Has God ever given you a sign of his love? You know why? Because he is personally invested in bringing you to the place of complete agreement with him. And then finally, he sends Gideon into the enemy's camp in chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. God says, if you're still not convinced, take your homie Pura. That sounds like a ghetto name, doesn't it? Pura. Come on, Pura. Let's go, Pura. Right? And, and at night, they go down into the enemy's camp. And when they get down there, they see a, a, one of the commanders sitting by a fire talking to one of the soldiers. And the, and the soldier says, I had a dream last night. He says, what did you dream? He said, there was this big biscuit rolling down the hill and it hit the tent of Midian and collapsed it. And the guy says, this is none other than the sword of Gideon. And God has given him, God has given us over into his hand. So now Gideon is listening to the devil prophesy about his victory. Isn't it interesting that the enemy, all the enemy needed was one dream to get the full revelation of of Gideon's victory. And Gideon needed all of these signs and fleece. The devil knows who you are so much better than you do. The devil has already got the full revelation of who you are before God. God's waiting for you to get it. Don't let the devil have more revelation than you do. Hmm? Okay. And then, so all of this is to help Gideon make the leap from his own perspective to God's perspective. You know, God be talking foolishness, right? First Corinthians chapter one, verse 25 says that the foolishness of God is wiser than men. Sometimes God will talk foolishness to you. He'll tell you you're rich when you're actually poor. He'll tell you you can see when you're actually blind. He walks into the home of Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue. His daughter is dead. He says, she's not dead. She's sleeping. And everybody's laughing. He puts them all out and says, little girl, I said, you arise and raises her up. He's talking foolishness. What are you talking about? No, no, no. She's not dead. She's sleeping. No, she's dead. See, whenever God speaks something that is completely antithetical to your situation, he wants to see whose report you're going to believe. He wants to see if you're going to lean on your own understanding or if you're going to believe the report of the Lord. Sometimes God speaks to you in, in in the darkness of night and says, look up at the sky. The day is dawned. The morning star has appeared in our hearts. It's the blue of noon. But you look up in the sky and it looks like the darkness of night. God wants to know if you're going to agree with his perspective or if you're going to cling to your own perspective. Discipleship is the process by which we learn to trust in the Lord with all of our hearts and lean not on our own understanding. And trusting in the Lord means believing what he says about who you are. Believing what he says about what you can do and believing what he says about what you have. And let me tell you something. You know who you are? You are mighty. The Lord is with you and you are mighty and you are men and women of valor. Let me tell you, that's who you are. You are mighty and men and women of valor and you're going to go in the strength that you have. God has made you liberators and deliverers. God has raised you up to be liberators and deliverers. That is who you are and you're going to go in the strength that you have and you're going to come into the truth. See, Gideon thought he was being true to himself when he was hiding in the wine press. In actuality, he was alienated from himself when he was hiding in the wine press. And some of you think you're being true to yourself. I'm just a shy person. No, you're not. You just don't know the you that God knows. 
So, well, I'm just a quiet person. That's my personality. Let me tell you something, that there's a personality that God sees that you don't see. And some of the quietest among you are going to roar like the, the, like the loudest lions. I'm telling you, there's a roar on the inside of you that you don't see, but God sees it. But God wants you to trade your perspective for his perspective. What does that mean? That simply means that you have to have a listening ear. That simply means that you have to have an open eye. Coming into the truth means exchanging your foolishness for God's foolishness. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. Let's pray. Pastor Sonny, please come up to the platform. Father, I pray today in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that your word would settle into our hearts. The way seed settles into the ground. I pray that you would strengthen... I pray that you would encourage. I pray that you would break the lie off of every heart and every mind. At this moment, there's a dislocation of the lie. God wants to dislocate the lie. The lie that says, I am not. The lie that says, I cannot. The lie that says, I have not. Some of you in this room right now are struggling with holiness issues. And in your heart and mind, you've said, God, I've got to learn how to live holy. Set me free from these sins. The word of the Lord to you this morning is that God has already set you free from your sins. Revelation chapter 1 verse 6. To him who has loved us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. You cannot call the blood of Christ a liar. You have been freed from your sins by his blood. He's already made you a kingdom of priests unto his God and King. You say, I don't have it. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. God wants to bring you into the fullness of it. Some of you, you feel just dry, experientially disconnected from the presence of the Lord. Say, well, I don't have the fire the way they have the fire. Let me tell you something. If you know Jesus Christ, the fire of God dwells on the inside of you. People say, well, is the baptism in the Holy Spirit a subsequent experience? It's experientially subsequent, but it's theologically concurrent. What does that mean? It means that the moment you come to faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to live on the inside of you. But the experiential component, he still has so much more to show you. He's got so much more to reveal to you. You say, I'm dry. You cannot be dry if you're indwelt by the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You are not dry. You've got to break that lie off of yourself. And as long as you're confessing, I'm dry. It'll be to you according to your faith. God's trying to get you to agree with him today. God's trying to get you to agree with him. Some of you are struggling financially and you're saying, man, I need more money. God says you have more than enough today. You have more. You need to come into agreement with me. There's no way that I would allow you to have less than you need. There's no way that I would allow you to have less than you need. There's no way, no good thing will I withhold from him whose walk is blameless. And I have withheld no good thing from you. God is breaking out from the midst of you this morning. He's breaking out from the midst of you this morning. But first, he's got to dislocate your mind and heart from the lie. He's removing the lie. He's unlocking it. He's taking the key and putting it in your hand. You don't have to live in that prison of lack anymore. I am not. I cannot. I have not. You're going to reverse that language. I am a child of God. 
We are, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who has called you out of darkness and into his glorious light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Father, this morning, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would dislodge the lie from every heart. Bring us into agreement with you. Help us to see that inferiority is an affront. Inferiority, walking in self-inferiority calls you a liar. God set us free from that lie. I pray it in Jesus' mighty name.